Chapter 20, Part 5 of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 2, by William Blackstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roy Haynes. Of Alienation by Deed, Part 5. 2. There yet remain to be spoken of some few conveyances which have their force and operation by virtue of the statute of uses. Uses and trusts are in their original of a nature very similar, or rather exactly the same, answering more to the fide commissum than the usus fructus of civil law, which latter was the temporary right of using a thing without having the ultimate property or full dominion of substance. But the fide commissum, which usually was created by will, was the disposal of an inheritance to one, in confidence that he should convey it or dispose of the profits at the will of another. And it was the business of a particular magistrate, the praetor fide commissaris, instituted by Augustus, to enforce the observance of this confidence so that the right thereby given was looked upon as a vested right, and entitled to a remedy from the court of justice, which occasioned that known division of rights by the Roman law into jus legitimum, a legal right, which was remedied by the ordinary course of law, jus fiduciarum, a right in trust, for which there was a remedy in conscience, and jus precarium, a right in courtesy, for which the remedy was only by entreaty or request. In our law, a use might be ranked under the rights of the second kind, being a confidence reposed in another who was tenant of the land or terra tenant, that he should dispose of the land according to the intentions of chestwe que use, or him to whose use it was granted, and suffer him to take the profits. As if a fiefment was made to A and his heirs, to the use of, or in trust for, B and his heirs, here at the common law, A, the terra tenant, had the legal property and possession of the land, but B, the chestwe que use, was in conscience and equity to have the profits and disposal of it. This notion was transplanted into England from civil law about the close of the reign of Edward III by means of foreign ecclesiastics, who introduced it to evade the statutes of Mortmain by obtaining grants of lands not to their religious houses directly, but to the use of the religious houses, which clerical chancellors of those times held to be fide commissa and binding in conscience, and therefore assumed the jurisdiction which Augustus had vested in his praetor of compelling the execution of such trusts in the court of chancery. And as it was most easy to obtain such grants from dying persons, a maxim was established that though by law the lands themselves were not divisible, yet if a testator had enfeoffed another to his own use, and so was possessed of the use only, such use was divisible by will. But we have seen how this evasion was crushed in its infancy by Statute 15 Richard II C5 with respect to religious houses. Yet, 
The idea being once introduced, however fraudulently, it afterwards continued to be often innocently and sometimes very laudably applied to a number of civil purposes, particularly as it removed the restraint of alienations by will and permitted the owner of lands in his lifetime to make various designations of their profits as prudence or justice or family convenience might from time to time require. Till at length, during our long wars in France and the subsequent civil commotions between the houses of York and Lancaster, uses grew almost universal, through the desire that men had, when their lives were continually in hazard, of providing for their children by will, and of securing their estates from forfeitures, when each of the contending parties, as they became uppermost, alternately attainted the other. Wherefore, about the reign of Edward the Fourth, before whose time Lord Bacon remarks there are not six cases to be found relating to the doctrine of uses, the courts of equity began to reduce them to something of a regular system. Originally, it was held that the chancery could give no relief but against the very person himself entrusted for chestweke use, and not against his heir or alienee. This was altered in the reign of Henry the Sixth with respect to the heir, and afterwards the same rule, by a parity of reason, was extended to such alienees as had purchased either without a valuable consideration or with an express notice of the use. But a purchaser for a valuable consideration without notice might hold the land discharged of any trust or confidence. And also it was held that neither the king or queen, on account of their dignity royal, nor any corporation aggregate, on account of its limited capacity, could be seized to any use but their own. That is, they might hold the lands, but were not compelable to execute the trust. And, if the fee-fee to uses died without heir, or committed a forfeiture, or married, neither the lord who entered for his achette or forfeiture, nor the husband who retained the possession as tenant by the courtesy, nor the wife who was assigned her dower, were liable to perform the use, because they were not parties to the trust, but came in by act of law, though doubtless their title and reason was no better than that of the heir. On the other hand, the use itself, or interest of chestwe ke use, was learnedly refined upon, with many elaborate distinctions. And, 1. It was held that nothing could be granted to a use, whereof the use is inseparable from the possession, as annuities, ways, commons and authorities, quae ipsu usu consumuntur, or whereof the season could not be instantly given. 2. A use could not be raised without a sufficient consideration. For where a man makes a fiefment to another without any consideration, Equity presumes that he meant it to the use of himself, unless he expressly declares it to be the use of another, and then nothing shall be presumed contrary to his own expressions. But if either a good or valuable consideration appears, equity will immediately raise a use correspondent to such consideration. 3. Uses were descendable according to the rules of the common law in the case of inheritances in possession. For in this and many other aspects, equitas sequitur legem, 
and cannot establish a different rule of property from that which the law has established. 4. Uses might be assigned by secret deeds between the parties or be devised by last will and testament. For as the legal estate in the soil was not transferred by these transactions, no livery of season was necessary. And as the intention of the parties was the leading principle in this species of property, any instrument declaring that intention was allowed to be binding in equity. But Chestwe ke use could not at common law alien the legal interest of the lands without the concurrence of his fifi, to whom he was accounted by law to be only tenant at sufferance. 5. Uses were not liable to any of the feudal burdens, and particularly did not eschet for felony or other defect of the blood. For eschets, etc., are the consequence of tenure, and uses are held of nobody. But the land itself was liable to eschet whenever the blood of the fee-fee to uses was extinguished by crime or by defect, and the lord, as was before observed, might hold it discharged of the use. 6. No wife could be endowed, or husband have his courtesy, of a use, for no trust was declared for their benefit at the original grant of the estate. And therefore, it became customary, when most estates were put in use, to settle before marriage some joint estate to the use of the husband and wife for their lives, which was the original of modern jointures. 7. A use could not be extended by writ of elegit, or other legal process, for debts of chestui ke use. For, being merely a creature of equity, the common law, which looked no farther than to the person actually seized of the land, could award no process against it. It is impractical, upon our present plan, to pursue the doctrine of uses through all the refinements and niceties which the ingenuity of the times, abounding in subtle disquisitions, deduced from this child of the imagination. When once a departure was permitted from the plain simple rules of property established by ancient law, these principal outlines will be fully sufficient to show the ground of Lord Bacon's complaint that this course of proceeding was turned to deceive many of their just and reasonable rights. A man that had cause to sue for land knew not against whom to bring his action, or who was the owner of it. The wife was defrauded of her thirds, the husband of his courtesy, the lord of his wardship, relief, Harriet, and Achette, the creditor to his extent for debt, and the poor tenant of his lease. To remedy these inconveniences, abundance of statutes were provided, which made the lands liable to be extended by the creditors of Chestway K. Use, allowed actions for the freehold to be brought against him if in the actual pernancy or enjoyment of the profits, made him liable to actions of waste, established his conveyances and leases made without the concurrence of his fee-fees, and gave the lord the wardship of his heir with certain other feudal perquisites. These provisions all tended to consider Chestwi K. Use as the real owner of the estate, and at length that idea was carried into full effect by the statute 27 Henry VIII C. 10, which is usually called the Statute of Uses, or, in conveyances and pleadings, the Statute for Transferring Uses into Possession.
The hint seems to have been derived from what was done at the accession of King Richard III, who having, when Duke of Gloucester, been frequently made a fifi to uses, would upon the assumption of the crown, as the law then understood, have been entitled to hold the lands discharged of the use. But to obviate so notorious an injustice, an act of Parliament was immediately passed, which ordained that, where he had been so in fief jointly with other persons, the land should vest in the other fiefs, as if he had never been named, and that, where he stood solely in fiefed, the estate itself should vest in chestuike use, in like manner as he had the use. And so the statute of Henry the Eighth, after reciting the various inconveniences before mentioned and many others enacts, that when any person shall be seized of lands, etc., to the use, confidence or trust, or any other person or body politic, the person or corporation entitled to the use in fee simple, fee tail, for life, or years, or otherwise, shall from thenceforth stand to be seized or possessed of the land, etc., of and in the like estates as they have in the use, trust, or confidence, and that the estate of the person so seized to uses shall be deemed to be in him or them that have the use in such quality, manner, form, and condition as they had before the use. The statute thus executes the use as our lawyers term it. That is, it conveys the possession to the use and transfers the use into possession, thereby making chestuike use complete owner of the lands and tenements, as well at law as in equity. The statute having thus not abolished the conveyance to uses, but only annihilated the intervening estate of the fee-fee, and turning the interest of chestuike use into a legal instead of an equitable ownership, the courts of common law began to take cognizance of uses, instead of sending the party to seek his relief in chancery. And, considering them now as merely a mode of conveyance, very many of the rules before established in equity were adopted with improvements by the judges of the common law. The same persons only were held capable of being seized to a use. The same considerations were necessary for raising it, and it could only be raised of the same hereditaments as formerly. But as the statute, the instant it was raised, converted it into an actual possession of the land, a great number of these incidents that formerly attended it in its fiduciary state were now at an end. The land could not ashet or be forfeited by the act or defect of the fee-fee, nor be alien to any purchaser discharged of the use, nor be liable to dower or courtesy on account of the season of such fee-fee because the legal estate never rests in him for a moment, but is instantaneously transferred to chestuike use as soon as the use is declared. And, as the use and the land were now convertible terms, they became liable to dower, courtesy, and eschet, in consequence of the season of chestuike use, who were now become the terror tenant also, and they likewise were no longer divisible, by will. The various necessities of mankind induced also the judges very soon to depart from the rigor and simplicity of the rules of the common law, 
and to allow a more minute and complex construction upon conveyances to uses than upon others. Hence it was adjudged that the use need not always be executed the instant the conveyance is made, but if it cannot take effect at that time, the operation of the statute may wait till the use shall arise upon some future contingency, to happen within a reasonable period of time, and in the meanwhile the ancient use shall remain in the original grantor, as, when lands are conveyed to the use of A and B, after a marriage shall be had between them, or to the use of A and his heirs, till B shall pay him a sum of money, and then to the use of B and his heirs. Which doctrine, when devices by will were again introduced, and considered as equivalent in point of construction to declarations of uses, was also adopted in favor of executory devices. But herein these, which are called contingent or springing uses, differ from an executory device, in that there must be a person seized to such uses at the time when the contingency happens, else they can never be executed by the statute, and therefore, if the estate of the fee-fee to such use be destroyed by alienation or otherwise, before the contingency arises, the use is destroyed forever, whereas by executory device, the freehold itself is transferred to the future devisee. And, in both these cases, a fee may be limited to take effect after a fee, because, though it was forbidden by the common law in favor of the Lord's Ashet, yet, when the legal estate was not extended beyond one fee simple, such subsequent uses, after a use in fee, were before the statute permitted to be limited in equity, and then the statute executed the legal estate in the same manner as the use before subsisted. It was also held that a use, though executed, may change from one to another by circumstances, ex post facto, as if A makes a fiefment to the use of his intended wife and her eldest son for their lives, upon the marriage the wife takes the whole use in severalty, and upon the birth of a son the use is executed jointly in them both. This was sometimes called a secondary, sometimes a shifting use. And whenever the use limited by the deed expires or cannot vest, it returns back to him who raised it, after such expiration or such impossibility, and is styled a resulting use. As, if a man makes a fiefment to the use of his intended wife for life, with remainder to the use of her firstborn son and tail, here, till he marries, the use results back to himself. After marriage, it is executed in the wife for life. If she dies without issue, the whole results back to him in fee. It was likewise held that uses originally declared may be revoked at any future time, and new uses be declared of the land, provided the grantor reserve to himself such a power at the creation of the estate. Whereas the utmost that the common law would allow was a deed of defeasance coeval with the grant itself, and therefore esteemed part of it, upon events specifically mentioned. And, in case of such a revocation, the old uses were instantly to cease, and the new ones to become executed in their stead. And this was permitted partly to indulge the convenience, and partly the caprice of mankind, 
who, as Lord Bacon observes, have always affected to have the disposition of their property revocable in their own time and irrevocable ever afterwards. By this equitable train of decisions in the courts of law, the power of the court chancery over landed property was greatly curtailed and diminished. But one or two technical scruples, which the judges found it hard to get over, restored it with tenfold increase. They held in the first place that no use could be limited on a use, and that when a man bargains and sells his land for money, which raises a use by implication to the bargainee, the limitation of a farther use to another person is repugnant and therefore void. And therefore, on a fiefment to A and his heirs, to the use of B and his heirs, in trust for C and his heirs, they held that the statute executed only in the first use, and that the second was a mere nullity, not adverting that the instant the first use was executed in B, he became seized to the use of C, which second use the statute might as well be permitted to execute as it did the first, and so the legal estate might be instantaneously transmitted down through a hundred uses upon uses till finally executed in the last chesue ke use. Again, as the statute mentions only such persons as were seized to the use of others, this was held not to extend to terms of years or other chattel interests, whereof the term or is not seized, but only possessed. And therefore, if a term of 1,000 years be limited to A, to the use of or in trust for B, the statute does not execute this use, but leaves it as at common law. And lastly, by more modern resolutions, where lands are given to one and his heirs, in trust to receive and pay over the profits to another, this use is not executed by the statute, for the land must remain in the trustee to enable him to perform the trust. End of chapter 20, part 5